Nine years ago, at the end of October, my wife and I decided to take a trip. So we were expecting our first child at the time. About four months before, uh, the only car that we had, the transmission blew, so we had to get a car, and we knew there were medical bills coming up. So I took a third job. I was working two jobs, and I took a third job, and we just committed to, hey, I'm basically going to be busy all the time, but once a week we're going to get together for a date. And then before Ellie is born, we'll we'll take a little trip just to reconnect, just to make sure that we're kind of partners and doing okay. And so we were really looking forward to it. And we lived in Austin, Texas at the time, and about an hour away was a little German village that was kind of a destination spot where people would go um, for little vacations. And so we said, hey, let's save up. Let's make sure that this is the place that we go. We're going to go to Fredericksburg, and this is going to be awesome. But you have to get to Fredericksburg, and that becomes the issue, because we'd never been, and so we got, I got online. At this time, a few people had smartphones, some people had GPSs, but the rest of us either had to use a map, we had to know where we were going, or you had to get on the internet and print off directions. So I printed off, I got on Google and I printed off directions, and we're so excited, it's going to take us an hour to get to Fredericksburg. And then, at about the hour mark, we're like, this looks kind of weird. Is this Fredericksburg? And we end up, on a dead-end road, the directions, we followed the directions, and we ended up in somebody's front yard in the middle of nowhere in Texas. We don't know where we're at. I have no idea how to get from here to Fredericksburg. My wife is eight months pregnant at the time, and she was like, where did you get these directions? I was like, Google gave them to me. And she, I remember she was like, it's kind of become a joke ever since then. She's like, did you get these directions from Google? Because MapQuest is way better. So we end up in this front yard, and she, she, I was talking to her about this yesterday, and she goes, how did we get out of there? And I was like, well, we pulled out the map, we drove until we found a road that was actually on the map, and then we had to drive two more hours until we could get to Fredericksburg. And so now, so the question then after that becomes, well, we're never going to trust Google again. Like, Google makes, leads you into the front yard of some random person in Texas, and at this point in Texas, there's so many canyons and rivers and lakes that you, there's no direct route to the place that you want to get. But isn't that the way that we always end up with stuff? We, we get into a bind, and then we go, who got me here, and how am I going to get out of it? And then from that point on, we go, can I trust this person again? Can I ever trust this person to get me out of this jam again? Or maybe it's like, well, I'm never going to trust Google. From now on, I'm only going to do what I see on a map. I'm not going to trust anybody. Or we get into a situation and we go, you know what, it's not so much, I'm just never going to trust anybody again. I'm only going to do the things that I know how to do. Driving on the roads that I know where they go. Not venturing out and going to other places. Isn't that the kind of thing that we can do in like lots of areas of life? When it comes to parenting, we get advice from somebody and then we go, they led me astray. They got me into a bind that I didn't know how to get out of. I'm never going to trust them again. I'm just going to do the things that I know how to make happen. I'm just going to do the things that I know. Maybe it's in a job. You have a boss that throws you under the bus, and you go, I'm never going to trust them again. I'm just going to depend on myself. I'm going to get my own way out of this. Maybe it's not a trust issue. Maybe it's something more like, I have to figure out how I'm going to get everything in my life lined up perfectly so that I never get into a jam again. We go, you know, I've got to get all of these things under control because I can't trust anybody or anything. I can only trust myself. Today we're going to be looking at a story in the Bible. 
specifically dealing with trust. It's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. If you grew up attending church, this is a story that you know. If you pay attention to pop culture at all, this is a story you've heard. We talk about underdogs as David versus Goliath. It's the kind of thing that we see in art where people make sculptures about David cutting off Goliath's head. It's a familiar story, David versus Goliath. But at its root is this issue of who are you going to trust in? Who are you going to trust in? If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 17. If not, we're going to have the verses on the screen. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched a camp at Ephes Damim between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you will speak clearly to us. Help us to know that you call us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the place names are unfamiliar to us. But what ends up happening is the Philistines, who have been living in the land that God has promised to Israel, and they've kind of been neighbors for a while, and they've been battling on and off. And the Philistines, they'll take control, and they'll begin... uh, They'll begin ruining the crops of the Israelites. They'll be taking their animals. The Israelites will be oppressing the Israelites. Then Saul comes along and begins the process of deliverance, has won a couple of battles, but God has rejected Saul as king because Saul won't listen to God. He's going to do his own thing. So we, then God anoints David, and this is the point that we reach. So God has said David's going to be the next king, but Saul doesn't know it yet. And so in this story, again, the Philistines are going to do battle with the Israelites, and they go down, and the Philistines end up on one side of the valley. The Israelites end up on the other. This is kind of a normal thing for the kinds of battles that they would do, is they would line up on opposite hills with a valley between them. But in this one, the difference is the Philistines have a champion. Sometimes they would do battle like this, and each side would choose a champion. Instead of being like, hey, let's all fight, and lots of people die. What if you pick your best guy, we pick our best guy? guy and whoever wins essentially wins the battle for everybody it's kind of a strategy i like just end up with two the possibility of one dead person maybe two if they're both good but in this battle they 
the Philistines are like, there's no way anybody can beat Goliath. Because you see, Goliath's over nine feet tall. He's got, a, he's got an experienced warrior as his shield bearer, and the spear, or the head on his spear weighs over 100 pounds, and he can throw it. Like, Goliath is this amazing champion. The Philistine goes, there's no way somebody can beat Goliath. There's no way somebody could do battle and beat Goliath. But the expectation for us is that Saul would be the one to go to battle. So Goliath is huge and strong and a champion in war, and Saul is a head taller than anybody else in Israel. And so the expectation would be that Saul would go to battle here. You reach this point. Goliath is this great champion. Here's the setup. It says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed So what are they going to do? The Israelites don't have a chance. If their king that's bigger than anybody else will not be the champion that they need, what's going to happen? So verse 12 says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse. We've already seen David. That David was a shepherd boy, but he was also experienced in battle. He could play the harp. He served in Saul's household. God told Samuel, this will be the next king. And it says, Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. These were impressive guys. We've seen this already in the story. Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. David was the youngest. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. So the story says, for 40 days, Goliath would challenge the people of Israel. He'd show up in the morning and again in the evening. He would take his stand and he would defy the people and he would defy God. It says, now Jesse said to his son David, take this roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. So Jesse sends David into the battle and says, hey, go and take this to your brothers. You're not supposed to be the warrior, but go ahead. So David goes. David hears Goliath's cry. The Israelites, verse 25 says, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So Saul is trying to find a champion in his place and says, I will give him money. I will give his family exemption from taxes. I will give him my daughter. So he's now part of my family. And then David says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying. Then David's brothers turn on him and say, why are you here? Why are you asking these questions? Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David says, what have I done? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the man answered him as before. So to this point, David has heard the challenge, and then it says, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. This is the most unexpected thing David could have heard. This is the best Philistine champion, over nine feet tall, strong, experienced in war, and a child comes and says, don't worry, I can do this. 
your servant will go and fight him. Like, there's a lot on the line for Saul in this moment. Like, if David loses, then that's essentially the entire army losing. So Saul objects and says, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. And then David says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistines will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. Story says, then Saul says, wait, here's my sword and here's my armor. David tries it on and says, I cannot go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The temptation is to go, what is there, what's the secret about the stones? Man, did, were these like big stones? Was David amazing with stones? Like, what is the deal? The truth is, there's a nine-foot-tall man with a hundred-pound spear in his hand, experienced in war, and a little child is walking out to war with rocks. And we're supposed to not think, what is it about the rocks? We're supposed to go, what is about to happen? Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give the your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, this is the critical point. When we're reading the Bible and we're reading a story and we wonder what's the point of the story? The point of the story usually starts with something that somebody says towards the end of the story and something that the narrator explains. And here's, what it ha- here's the crisis point of the story. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. This is the crisis point. David doesn't say, look at how experienced I am in war. He says, this is what God's going to do today. This is what God's going to do. It's not my stones. It's not these things in my hand that I'm good at. The Lord will do this today. So as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. So he says that David then runs over and grabs Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. Israel then chases the Philistine army, winning a great victory. Then he takes the Philistine's head, brings it back to Jerusalem. Saul is like, who is this man? 
So David, uh, Saul says, who is this man? What is his family? And he says, so David comes into his presence. After killing the Philistine, it says, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. It's easy to look at this story and go, oh, David versus Goliath. Just like games in a basketball tournament, somebody young and small defeating somebody who's big. And Growing up, I heard story after story about, wow, the, the stone would have been flying so fast and David was so good at that. But if we look at the story, David doesn't say, look at what I'm good at. Look at my strategy. Look at what I'm going to do today. Every time somebody questions David, he starts his statement with the Lord. David's statements throughout this are, the Lord is going to do this. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. He says, Saul, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And so the point of this story is that we are called to trust in God, not strength and strategy. We can turn the story of David into a, a, a study in what's the right kind of strategy when you're in a weaker position. But the point of it is actually a call for us to trust in the Lord, not swords and spears, not strength and strategy. David constantly in this story is pointing to, look, this is what the Lord has done. This is what the Lord is doing. One of the other images here in this story is this image of hand. David, when he explains to Saul, this is what happened when bears and lions would come and take the sheep away. He would say, I, I would deliver the, the sheep from the hand of the bear and from the hand of the lion. Or he said, the Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And he's going to rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Then that consistently through the passage is this, the, the phrase, the hand of, the hand of, the hand of. Not because God, we're delivering something with our hands, but it's because God delivers us from the hands of. Though I mentioned this as we were reading the story. David doesn't outsmart Goliath here. It's not that he was so good with a sling. It's not that he, he knew, hey, I can do something with a projectile that, that Goliath can't do. The point of this is that a small child doing what looks foolish the Lord used him to deliver Israel. And we know this because David says in verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. We can't replace it is not by sword and spear that the Lord saves with because God uses slings and stones. The point is, it's not strength and strategy. The reason that Israel needs to know this is because as they look at their king, they're going to be consistently tempted to trust in strength and strategy, swords and spears. Throughout their history, it is this constant story of, well, if we just do this, or if we get this, if we get this kind of champion, we're going to be delivered. Israel needs to know that it is not by sword and spear that God delivers. And so right here at the beginning of the, the, the life of the greatest king Israel has in its history, at the beginning of David's life, they need to know that it's actually not swords and spears that God uses. 
That's not how He saves. So the call to us is to trust in God, not strength and strategy. It's actually the temptation we see throughout the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 36, He warns the people of Israel, don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. That broken reed, because if you lean on it, it will stab your hand. It's this image. You are so tempted to look at strength and say, that will save me. You're so tempted to look at strategy and say, that will be the thing that saves me. And God, right here at this beginning, is saying, look at this story of Goliath. Don't trust in swords and spears. Don't trust in strength and strategy. What I've noticed is that it's so easy for us to turn all of the good things of the Bible into our own strength and strategy. You see, we can look at prayer as a desperate call of people that need God's help, or we can turn prayer into this mechanism that God owes us something. And if we just pray hard enough, long enough, skillfully enough, then God will be manipulated into doing something. We can turn anything into this thing where we go, well, God will be obligated. If we just, if we just get all of these details right, then this strength and this strategy will be the thing that delivers us. And so the call here in the story of David is to trust in God, not our strength and not our strategy. I want to show you two lessons that point us here to trusting in God, not strength and strategy. The first is that God's people need shepherds, not heroes. God's people need shepherds, not heroes. The Philistines come and say, look at our champion. Bring out your champion. And Israel presents a little boy who's a shepherd and his, and his entire identity is wrapped up in he's a shepherd because the stories that he tells are stories of being a shepherd. The stories that other people tell about him are why don't you just go back to the sheep? Who did you leave them with? David's identity is wrapped up in being a shepherd and I think that that's intentional. You see, sometimes we can think about cultural things in the Bible and say, well, that, that's what the culture was shepherds and so that's the image. But what if God chose Israel and tell Israel's story because he wants us to know that we need a shepherd? What if it's not just an accident and an image that God used, but the story of the Bible is a story of shepherds because one day he's going to point us and say, I, need a sh- I will be your shepherd. You see, God's people need shepherds, not heroes, because Goliath was more than just a, a hero. Goliath was the same kind of threat that the bear and the lion were to the sheep. And instead of David being raised up as a hero right here at the beginning, David is raised up as his warrior, his fighting. His warrior identity actually comes because he has the heart of a shepherd wanting to deliver the people. You see, without the image of a shepherd in the Bible, I think we end up with a a God, a, a king, a sovereign who's far removed, who tells people what to do and stands back and watches them do it. But when we look in the Bible and see shepherd throughout, we see this this picture of intimacy, of God in his presence coming near to us, not just saying, do this and don't do that, but him leading, taking us by the hand, walking with us moment by moment. So then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd because what God's people need are shepherds. Not people out front, but people alongside, caring for, feeding, protecting, and defending. And so the challenge to us when we're tempted to go after heroes and strength and strategy, is to say, is to ask ourselves, will I trust in the heart of my shepherd? You see, my life seems to be blowing up and things are going wrong and things are out of control. And the question here, as we see that God wants them to know, you have a shepherd, not just a hero, is will we trust in the heart of the shepherd? 
Will we trust in the heart of the shepherd? As things go bad, as our lives may fall apart and things, things disintegrate, the temptation is going to be go, God, why are you so far away? What are you doing? But if God is a shepherd walking alongside us, not just a champion out in front of us, then we can trust his heart. And heed that warning and say, oh, I don't want to go that way. I don't want to go that way. I want to trust in his heart. And the second lesson that we find here is that there is something that we have to know and we can't know it if we have a champion. Verse 46 and 47 is where David says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And here's the point. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You see, if the battle is about swords and spears and strength and strategy, then the world learns nothing from our success. God, the world learns nothing about God if it's just, well, we're talented enough, we're strong enough, we figured it out on our own. But when we are desperate, and when we are standing there like little children with rocks in our hands as we face a champion, then the world knows that there is a God that exists. So the world has to know that there is a God that exists, and they don't learn it if it's our strength and our strategy. But the thing that we end up learning is that God doesn't deliver by sword or spear. See, I think that Goliath was not Israel's greatest threat here. Sure, Goliath could do damage. If Saul had gone out in battle and he had defeated Saul, there would have been some damage done. But the greatest temptation is actually to think that God uses our strength and our strategy as his way of saving. Well, I can just get it on my own. I can do this. I've got this. Like a little child saying, no, I want to do it myself. The story of Israel was, no, I want to do it myself. God, I can't trust you in this. That was Israel's biggest threat. So this passage points us to Christ because eventually there would come a day when the king would say, put away your swords. The king would say, put away your swords. That's not how this battle is going to be won. He would go, and as he hung on the cross, and then he dies, they come and they bring a spear and stab him in the side, proving to us once and for all that it is not by sword and spear that God saves. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give, he will save us from our enemy. And so what we need is not a champion. What we need is not a champion. We need a shepherd. And the call to us in this is to trust in God, not our strength and our strategy. So as we look at our finances and we go, there are some things I'm supposed to do in my life. But if we spend all of our time going, how do I grip this? How do I grab this? How do I make things happen? Then we've missed this lesson that the battle is the Lord's. If we look at loneliness in our life and say, what kind of strength and strategy can I use? What kind of hero and champion is out there that can deliver me from this loneliness? then we've missed this point that the battle is the Lord's. If we're facing a battle in our personal lives and we go, where is the champion? Where is the strength? Where is the strategy? Instead of going, where is the Lord? He's promised to be a shepherd to me in this and I'm going to trust in him so that I can know his true salvation and so that the world can know that there is a God in Israel. Maybe some of you go, Joe, how can I know for sure that I'm trusting in God, not strength and strategy. 
How can I know for sure that I'm, not, that I'm trusting in God, not strength and strategy? The story of the Bible is that God made the world and he made it good. And he looked on it and he walked in the garden with Adam in intimacy, Adam and Eve. And he would walk with them in the cool of the day so that God is the king over it, but he's put Adam and Eve under him and he walks with them in relationship. But instead of staying in that place, Adam and Eve say, no, we don't actually want to walk with God in intimacy. We'd rather do our own thing. We'd rather, we'd rather run our own kingdom. God, we don't want your authority and we don't want your presence. And so they disobeyed God and every human after them has said, no, God, you won't be king over us and we will not walk with you. God, the Bible says that God will punish his enemies. He will one day judge them forever. But instead of leaving us as, en- as his enemies, the Bible says that the God of the universe, who is king over everything, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died with us and for us, so that all who repent of sin, turning away from sin and trusting in Christ, who say, no, I will not, I don't want my own kingdom, I don't want my estrangement from God, I want Jesus. So that all who do that are delivered, not by sword and spear, not by sword and spear, but by his life, his death, and his resurrection. So my invitation to you, whether you've heard that story for the first time today or you've heard it many times, is to say, no, I'm going to trust in God, not strength and strategy. I can't be made right with God on my own, with my own strength, with my own ways of doing things. And if you decide that you want to do that, you can pray on your own, but you can also grab me, grab one of the people that you know and trust here, and say, hey, I want to know for sure that I am trusting in God and not in myself. And so for those of us that do trust in Christ, that do say, God, I I want to trust in you and not in my strength and strategy, the encouragement in this is that the battle is the Lord's. And so whatever you're facing, whatever this week looks like, whatever is happening inside you or outside you, the battle is the Lord's. And it's not swords and spears that he delivers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would I pray that you would sink this deep into our hearts. God, I pray that we would be a church, that we would be a body that, that is deeply in love with the fact that you save us and that you are on the move and we can trust you. And we don't have to do this on our own in our own strength. And I pray that in our fellowship and in our lives that the world around us would know that there is a God in Belgium and that you don't save with sword and spear. In Jesus' name, amen.